Thanks, Trevor. Well, if you will, we are in a sermon series on Acts, and so if you would all stand, I'm going to read our text tonight. It's Acts 21. There are Bibles underneath your chairs if you don't have one, but we're going to start right in verse 1. Acts 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kuz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named, named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. You guys, be seated. Now, the, the longer I'm in full-time ministry, the more I realize that there's sort of a repetitive theme to questions. The same questions kind of crop up time and time again. Things like, how does an all-powerful or all-knowing or all-sovereign God allow evil or suffering? Those, those sorts of questions. And one that I actually get, I think even more than that sort of question, is the question of God's will. So should I major in engineering or should I major in physics? Which is, in my opinion, an easy one, neither. But, um, you know, should I marry this person or should I marry that person or should I join this small group or that small group or there's a, there's a job offer in Portland or Seattle, what should I do? And I can almost guarantee that at some point in your life, you've been paralyzed with all of the choices that abound 
and all the decisions you have to make, you've been paralyzed by this whole process of discerning and figuring out what's God's will. There's an interesting book by a man named Barry Schwartz who wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And in this book, he, in a hilarious way, he details what it's like to go to the grocery store. And this is what he says. He writes, when he went to the grocery store, I found 285 varieties of cookies, 13 sports drinks, 65 box drinks, 85 kids' juices, 75 iced teas, 95 types of chips and pretzels, 15 kinds of bottled water, 80 different pain relievers, 40 options for toothpaste, 150 lipsticks, 360 types of shampoo, 90 different cold remedies, 230 soups, 75 instant gravies, 275 varieties of cereal, 64 types of barbecue sauce, and 22 types of frozen waffles. Right? This is why whenever I go to the grocery store, my wife gives me a detailed list of things to get because there's an infinite amount of ways I could screw it up because there's so many choices. And in some countries, right, people suffer from too few choices. But in our country, we have so many choices. And you couple that with the message that we all probably received from teachers and educators that we were unique snowflakes and that we could do anything we put our heart to, you couple that with the infinite amount of choices we have, and you can probably guess why we're in the disaster that we are in right now when it comes to finding God's will. So what is God's will for my life? Over the years, I've realized that we, <laughs> we do some really odd things with finding and discerning God's will. And two kind of come to the surface. Two, I think, are kind of most prevalent. And that is we think about finding God's will arbitrarily and also in kind of a manipulative way. So how do, how do we kind of think of God's will arbitrarily? Well, we kind of pick and choose. My guess is when you woke up today and you pulled out your sock drawer, you didn't pray and really think, okay, which socks are God's will for me today? Or you woke up and you're like, all right, Fruity Pebbles or Ch Cheerios or whatever. Like the list goes on. You weren't worried about discerning what it is that God was calling you to do in that. And when you think about it, probably 99 out of 100 decisions you make in a day, you make so quickly and seemingly arbitrary. And then what we do is we weight these decisions on a, we, we weight decisions on a scale of kind of, you know, one to 100. And we say, all right, the top 10% are really important decisions. They affect more things. They affect my life. And so we say those are, those top 10% are the things that we really are like, that's the sort of thing that we need to figure out God's will for. So we kind of do it arbitrarily. We decide what it is that is important enough that we need to figure out God's will. And other things we just use wisdom. We just kind of process it and make decisions. Then the second thing is we kind of do it manipulatively. Um, I went to a Christian college, and if you go to a Christian college, there's some weird things that you see happen. And, um, you know, best intentions aside, it was quite common for a man, maybe a boy, to walk up to a girl who is way out of his league and say, I really think, really think, I've been praying, I really think God's will is telling me to, to date you, right? Which is completely and utterly ridiculous and convenient. Or I read of a... Uh, 
a man who also went to a Christian college and he was saying that he was talking with his roommate one day and his roommate saw this girl and was like, That's, I'm going after her. And he did, and he got a date. So they went on a date and he, he had a wonderful time on this date. And the next day he saw her and said, hey, you wanna go on another date? She said, well, I've been praying about it and I really feel like the Holy Spirit is saying that we shouldn't date. And so he went back to his roommate and said, man, I've been rejected a lot in my life. I've just never been rejected by the third person of the Trinity, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I did this when I was in college. Uh, I was, I rode, I was on the crew team and I was probably the greatest, the worst college athlete in the history of college athletics. And it, it came a point when I just wanted to quit. So I didn't really have the balls to actually walk up to this coach who was ex-military and say, hey, I'm quitting and probably as a result of that, my entire boat's gonna quit. And so I did what every Christian kid at a Christian college would do. I said, I really think that God's calling me to quit crew. crew really focus on and you know I went through this whole litany of of things because think about it it's my God trump card the moment she pushes back and he pushed back the coaches they're pushing back on God because God God was God was in this God was in my decision process and so we kind of put this trump that's a possibly a, a bad word right now we kind of put this we, we, we put God as the ultimate standard and say, hey, if you have a problem with my decision, talk with God. And so we all have this tension. What's God's will for our life? Do you guys struggle or do you think in those categories? Because I'm assuming today that many of us do. How do you find God's will for your life? So Paul in our text, he just left Ephesus and he's going to Jerusalem. And so he, as you can tell, this is kind of a travel narrative. He makes many stops on his journey, which was quite typical. And eventually Paul and company, they arrive in Syria, then to the city of Tyre, which was a major port in the Mediterranean. And so they dock and they unload their cargo and they sought out some Christians that they heard were rumored to be there. And they stayed there for seven whole days. They worshiped. Paul taught, they enjoyed each other, and then something happened, something very, very interesting. Our text says that, and through the Spirit, right, the third person of the Trinity, God, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul must have been kind of ministering to them wonderfully, and so they just were begging Paul, you can't go to Jerusalem. But Paul didn't even have a reply. He didn't even have a reply. So the Christians in Tyre, along with their children, they accompanied Paul and company out of the city. And before they boarded the ship to leave, they knelt down and they prayed for Paul and company. And you almost get the picture when it comes to this prayer that it says they did, that it was almost a hostile prayer. I don't know if you've ever uh, been in the, uh, a prayer gathering in which um, it's, it's, it's just a time for someone to actually vent their opinions in a prayer gathering. And I almost get the, the feeling that people were like, well, Lord, we are certain that Paul's not supposed to go to Jerusalem, God. And we all have our sins, and this is one of Paul. He's just so arrogant and da da da, da. So God, just whatever you have to do, just stop him. Overrule him and this decision. And so we can probably imagine why Paul had this kind of mixture 
of emotions. In one sense, he was kind of sad because he's leaving these people that he administered to and enjoyed for the last week, but they're just a bunch of negative Nancys. And so he left. He left. And Paul and company, they get on a ship, they land in Caesarea, and they enter the house of Philip. This is the Philip that first brought the gospel to Samaria and who baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And God had blessed Philip, right? He had four daughters. Not just four daughters, four daughters who are all prophesying, which in the context is most naturally about Paul's difficult future in Jerusalem. And then a, a day later, this guy comes from Judea, Agabus. Agabus. And what does he do? He grabs Paul's belt and he binds his hands and his feet and he says, this is thus says the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now this might kind of be odd if you ever kind of did this, but this goes in a, a long line of prophets who actually used kind of word pictures and illustrations in order to communicate a prophecy. So we see this in Ezekiel, who foretold the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem by kind of assaulting a, a model of the city. And that's kind of what Agabus does. He uses Paul's bet, belt to actually communicate what was going to happen in Jerusalem if Paul goes. It was a prophetic illustration. And as a result, people started urging him, Paul, you can't go. You can't go to Jerusalem. And Paul, it's interesting, finally responds to them and says, what are you doing? Weep, you're weep, I'm weeping and you're breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's not going to change his mind. Paul's not going to change his mind. And so they cease to persuade him, and the people just said, well, let the will of the Lord be done. They gave up. And after this, Paul went to Jerusalem. And if you keep reading the narrative, exactly what these prophecies said happened. He was arrested and handed over to the Gentiles. <coughs> So there's, there's a point of tension that we need to unravel. It's the central tension of this entire narrative, and that's this. Did Paul sin and disobey God by going to Jerusalem? Did Paul sin and disobey the Holy Spirit when he went to Jerusalem? Twice in our text, the Holy Spirit speaks through two different people in two different times and in two different places, and Paul still goes to Jerusalem. Is he obeying? Is he not obeying the Holy Spirit? Does his ministry aspirations negate his obedience to the voice of God? So that's the central tension of this whole thing. And, and honestly, and I'm not alone here, I don't think Paul's sinning. I don't think he's sinning at all by going against what the Holy Spirit was saying to these two groups of people. I don't think that's what's happening at all. I actually think on the contrary that those in Tyre and those in Caesarea were the ones who were actually sinning. So if you go back to Acts 20, 
when Paul is speaking to the Ephesians, saying his goodbye. In verse 22, we read this. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city what imprisonment and affliction await me. In every city, Paul says, the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul and told him the same thing. Told him that affliction and imprisonment was coming for him. In every city, this is what the Holy Spirit said. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to two different people, or spoke through two different people, and said the exact same thing. If you go to Jerusalem, there is going to be persecution, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be affliction, there's going to be imprisonment. And that's exactly what Agabus says. And I think the interesting thing is, in both cases, in the Tyree community and in Caesarea through Agabus, neither of them interpreted the prophecy. They just declared it. If you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. But none of them said, and therefore, as a result of that, don't go to Jerusalem. None of them did. All just interpreted, seeing the same prophecy, they just interpreted it in different ways. Paul said, I know what's going to happen if I go to Jerusalem. I know exactly. The Holy Spirit's been testifying all along. I know what's going to happen, and I'm going anyways. But then the different people in Caesarea and Tyre said, hey, we know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and therefore it's stupidity. It's ignorance. You can't go. And that's the sort of tension that's going on. Paul and these different people have the same prophecy, but they have a totally different understanding of how to respond to it, which is quite common when you think about it. Information comes in, and people interpret that information differently. And in the case of our text, I think they, like us, fall victim to kind of three problems when it comes to discerning God's will. Three problems when it comes to discerning God's will. First, I think often we're way too quick to think we know God's will especially for other people. I think often we're just way too quick to think we know the will of God for people and sometimes for ourselves. We make these kind of emotional snap judgments or we kind of create a spiritual formula and then we kind of filter people's future through those, through those lenses. And in Tyree and Caesarea, they were too quick to think they knew the will of God. Second, I think we make, we try to figure out, this is the second way in which I think we kind of fail and how these people actually fail to discern the will of God. So we make God's will conform to our preconceptions. So the logic of the Christians in Tyree and Caesarea was probably as followed. Well, if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. And if he suffers, he's going to stop and stop ministering to us. And therefore, that can't be God's will. That definitely can't be God's will. And I'm, and I'm not saying that they were self-centered or narcissistic, but there's a sense in which these communities had a, a self-interest that was just camouflaged by a veneer of piety. So a, a family wants to go overseas. They want to go overseas, and they want to go to an unengaged, unreached people group. And they're excited, so they tell their small group leader, and they're like, hey, we think we're supposed to go here, and what 
happens. What sometimes happens? Their small group leader pulls them aside and said, that's, un, that's unwise. You have children. Oh, you can't live over there. It's dangerous over there. I mean, don't you know the, pri- the, the order of priority? God, family, ministry. You're sacrificing your family on the altar of ministry. How dare you take your children? <coughs> and so we kind of filter our understanding of what God's calling maybe people all because it doesn't mesh with our preconceptions. Or we, I've known, I've known people who have moved into the Labatt area, whatever that is, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of ministering to people, all the while, sometimes Christian communities go, that can't be God's will. You can't do that. That's unwise. And so here are these people saying, hey, Paul, you're going too far. I know you've suffered. I know you've done all these things, but going to Jerusalem, that's a suicide. You can't do it. It's a death wish. And then the third way I think we kind of can mess with finding God's will is that sometimes our eyes are more on the horizon of discomfort than the horizon of glory. Their love and loyalty, these communities, their love and loyalty, it was commendable. Right? They, they wanted to preserve Paul, but their motives, though noble, were short-sighted. These Christians were not seeing God's ultimate purposes. They were looking at Paul's good, but I don't think they were looking at God's good. Their eyes were set on the horizon of health and comfort, and they filtered God's will through that perspective. But if God's glory is penultimate, if that's the ultimate aim, then you're probably going to, as you gaze at that horizon, you're going to probably see the situation a little like Paul and not like the community in Tyree or the community in Caesarea. So give me, let me give you an illustration as an example. Let me give you a hypothetical. This is hypothetical. If you knew that next week, if you came to church, that after leaving church, you would get into a car crash, would you come to church? Knowing what would happen, if the Holy Spirit testified in that regard and you knew that after coming to church, you would be in a car crash, would you come to church? Some might say, sure. Others would say, heck no, I'd stay as far away from church as I possibly can. As possibly I can. Now, let me flip it on the other side. What if I said, think of your best friend who doesn't know Jesus, just your best friend, your uh, family member, whatever. What if I said next Sunday, through, through a normal conversation, you could lead that person to Jesus? Would you come to church knowing that afterwards you'd get in a car crash? That's the tension of this text. That's what's going on here. That's why Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. I mean, have you ever thought about what, as we're going through Acts, what is the reason why Paul wants to go to Jerusalem? He has a love offering. The Gentiles wanted to give to the poor in Jerusalem. That was Paul's ultimate and chief end, and that's why he wanted to go there. Because Paul was hoping that this love offering would build solidarity between Jews and Gentile Christians. I mean, the Jerusalem Council happened back in Acts 15, but there was tension, tension all over the place. And so Paul wanted to unify the church. And he had a massive vision of solidarity. A church with both Jews and Gentiles united under the banner of Christ, not living in legalism freedom, 
And so Paul went to Jerusalem. One, because the Spirit told him, yes. But he also went because he wanted to. He desired to go there. His ambition and vision compelled him. And I don't think he had a death wish. I think he had a unifying wish. Oswald Chambers, I think he expresses Paul's proper approach perfectly when this is what he writes when it comes to God's will and possibly knowing it, but then the possibility of suffering. He says, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, where it means suffering or not. Knowing God's will and obeying it in the face of suffering, that's what Paul did. He didn't kind of filter God's will quickly or through his preconceptions or on the horizon of comfort. He filtered the Spirit's prompting through the joy of being able to begin the process of unifying the church. That was his dream. And the Spirit never said that he wasn't, wouldn't be successful, only that it would cost him something. And so Paul turned his face towards Jerusalem, and he goes there. And instantly, in verse 15, when it says he does this, something should click in your mind. Because the book of Acts comes after, narratively, the Gospel of Luke. They were written by the same author. And the Gospel of Luke actually hinges on one verse. It's, it's divided into two parts when you think of it, all on one verse. And it's Acts 9, 51, which says this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's Jesus, he set his face to Jerusalem. When the days drew near, he set his face to Jerusalem. And Jesus knew that suffering awaited him in Jerusalem. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem, there would be people who would reject him in Jerusalem. I mean, in, in Jerusalem, he, he knew that there would be betrayal, even betrayal with a kiss. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem, there would be hypocrites, especially one named Herod. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem, there would be a tyrant named Pilate. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem, there was a dungeon that he would be imprisoned in. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem, there was going to be a path, and that path was going to be called suffering. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem, there would be flogging and pain. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem, there would be social humiliation. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem, the Romans perfected torture, calling it crucifixion. And Jesus knew that in Jerusalem, his mother, his own mother, would see it all. I mean, Jesus knew Jerusalem. And yet, and yet, he turned his face towards Jerusalem. Because Jesus also knew that in Jerusalem, there was a tomb. And in Jerusalem, that tomb, he would be laid. And once three days would pass, he knew that in that tomb, he'd be resurrected. I mean, Jerusalem, he knew. But the Father's will, he knew it far better. And Jesus, like Flint, turned his face towards Jerusalem. 
his eyes sparkling with Jerusalem delight because in Jerusalem, all of the long-awaited promises would find their fulfillment. And in the face of the greatest suffering that this world has ever come and ever come upon a man, Jesus never looked away from Jerusalem because he knew that that's where the sins of the world would be carried away on his own shoulders. You see, because, because of a look, because of a, a glance, the joy of that look and salvation was all that Jesus needed to do in order to establish that this was the will of God. And as a result, Paul, in our text, what does he do? He can't not look at Jerusalem. He, like his Savior, turned his face towards Jerusalem, and he never looked back. Paul knew the will of God, and I dare say, so can you. I think sometimes it's revealed to us in pretty practical ways, but I think often we just have to trust God in the daily and ordinary living and circumstances of our lives. Theologians actually use three kind of concepts when they talk about the will of God. The first is the will of God's decree. I mean, this, this refers to what God has ordained. So take Ephesians 1.11, which says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's the will of God, all that he ordains and decrees. And then there's a, a second aspect of God's will, which we can call God's will of desire. And this refers to what God is, what God commands, what his desires are for his creatures. So Hebrews 13.20 says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? God's second, God's desired decree that we would live in obedience to him. And then there's the third, which is kind of what we're talking about today, which is God's will of direction. But there's a problem when it comes to God's will of direction. Because every time God talks about God's will, he actually doesn't talk about it in the way that we're talking about it here. God's direct, personal, specific will for our lives. But I think we think about it kind of in the ordinary ways, in not the first way or the second way. When we think of the will of God, we're only thinking about it in the third way. And this is how I think most of us think about it. There's a book called The Will of God as a Way of Life by Gerald Sitzer. And this is what he writes about this third way that we normally and typically think about God's will. Conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he lays it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover this pathway, God's plan for our lives. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the way that we should follow and it's the one that God has planned for us. If and when we make the right choice, we will receive his favor 
fulfill our divinely destined life and succeed in life. If we choose rightly, we will experience his blessing and achieve success and happiness. If we choose wrongly, we may lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. I think that's how we think about God's will. We have all, we're in this maze and we just have to discern and figure out what it is that God's calling us. And if we get off the way, if we take the wrong choice, if we make the wrong turn, well then we're off of it for good. And I don't think that's what we're talking about when it comes to God's will. I mean, I said earlier that the will of God can be kind of terrifying and paralyzing. So how can you know God's will? If that's not exactly right, if being paralyzed by all of the the nuances of every choice you make, if that's not helpful or wise, what, how can you know the will of God? I think it's just one word. I think it's wisdom. We need wisdom to discern the will of God. I mean, think about it for a second. One-eighth of the entire Bible is what we call wisdom literature. Solomon could ask for anything from God, and what does he ask for? And what is he praised for asking for? Wisdom. Wisdom. And you might say, well, okay, wisdom, okay. But how do you even get wisdom? Well, generally, there's three ways that I think when it comes to figuring out God's will for your life, there's three ways in which we can look at this through the lens of wisdom. And that's walking in the, the way of Scripture as wisdom, walking with the counsel of the wise, and walking in prayer. I think those are the three things in which as you are making decisions, as you're processing your future, as you are thinking about what's next, the more and more you're reading God's word, the more and more you're hanging out with people who are wise, who are thoughtful, who ask the right questions, and the more you pray and ask God for illumination, for help, for guidance, you're going to know what God's will is decisions made apart from scripture and community and prayer are usually bad decisions. I can, I can attest to many of them in my own life. But the more we read our Bibles, the more we digest it, we, we learn the contours of its message while living in community, asking good questions, and then being asked good questions, all the while marinating it in prayer, asking for illumination. That's wisdom. That's how you know God's will. And then at some point, we just have to pull the trigger. We have to jump. We have to trust God with a decision and put it in his hands, knowing that he's a God of grace and mercy. Uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this October is the anniversary, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Um, it's the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. And a few years after that, a few years after Luther, he was on his way to the Diet of Worms. Martin Luther, this was not a good thing. He was thought, he thought he was going to die. Many had died doing similar things. The emperor at the time had forbidden the sale of all the reformers' books and ordered them to be seized. Luther's life was in danger. And so eventually Luther stands before the emperor, Charles, heir of a long line of Catholic, 
Catholic sovereigns, of Maximilian the Romantic, of Ferdinand the Catholic, of Isabella the Orthodox. Scion of the House of Habsburg, Lord of Australia, or Lord of Austria, not Australia. Lord of Burgundy, the Low Countries, Spain, Naples, Holy Roman Emperor, ruling of a vaster, of a vaster domain than anyone save Charlemagne, symbol of medieval unities, incarnation of a glorious yet vanishing heritage. I mean, that's the emperor. He's intense. Any of us would be intimidated to stand before him. And on, or on April 18th, a large hall was chosen because the crowd was so big that no one could even sit down except for the emperor himself. And eventually the archbishop, John Eck, he questions Luther in rapid succession. If you, if you read it, there's just question after question after question. And eventually he asks his last question, which is this. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? And this is his response. Since then, your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. It was one of the greatest moments in modern history of the world. And how did Martin Luther come to such a heroic statement? How did he stand alone before the world, risking his life for the sake of God's truth? I think it's because he knew God's will. He knew it through an examination of God's word. And this is what set him apart from all ordinary men. He knew and he obeyed the will of God. God calls us all to turn our faces toward all of our unique Jerusalems, to face possible ridicule or ostracism from friends, but in the face of that, to listen and to obey. Can you know the will of God? Certainly. But more than knowing the will of God, know God. Because if you know God, I promise you this, you will know his will. One flows from the other, which is why Augustine would say famously, love God and do whatever you want. Love God and do whatever you want. Because if you love God, you'll know what to do. And when you do it, and when you do it, don't second guess yourself. Just trust in God and leave the conclusions to that decision in the palm of his gracious and providential care. To that end, we pray.